The reading for today is Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 31. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the d divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Laura. Good morning, Arcadia. How are you guys doing? It's encouraging. So I know some of you right now are like, who's this guy? Yeah, I've been gone last two Sundays, I know. Uh, Jackie and I and the kids, uh, um, I the kids are adults now, I shouldn't be calling them that. But anyway, we got to spend some time, uh, 10 or 11 days up in Wisconsin, that was great, and uh, Tom was here, and then Cody preached, and uh, uh, we're very glad for that. I do, I will tell you, I, I feel a little bit like a guest preacher today. Uh, tonight, after the evening service, I get on another plane, I'm heading out to uh, uh, Irvine, um, because it's just too hot here, and so, no, I'm going there, there's a pastor's conference all next week, I get back Friday night, uh, come back for a week, and then I leave for camp again, so a lot of in and out, but um, glad to be here right now, be with you again uh, next Sunday, and, and uh, catching up in the book of Acts. Uh, some of you may be wondering, well, where's Cody uh, today? Uh, Cody, with, with all the vacations and stuff uh, in the summertime, we, we tend to shift people around from time to time. Cody is actually out at Gateway leading worship out there for their three services uh, this morning and tonight, and uh, so that's why we're uh, blessed to have John and Katie here leading us uh, this morning. It's always good to uh, uh, see them, and we were glad that they were available to be able to help us out. So um, I feel a little bit out of practice because I haven't done this in a few weeks, so um, I'm sorry, this is going to be a grind this morning. We're going to look at an entire chapter in the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter 17. So just turn there. It's the only place we're going to be all morning, but there's so much uh, going on here. Uh, Acts chapter uh, 17 is another travelogue of sorts. If, you were, if you've been with us during this series in Acts since the beginning of the year, you know that uh, this is not the first time that Luke writes like this. Uh, in chapter 14, he gave us another sort of travelogue. You know, they stopped here and they did this, they stopped here and they did this, and, and we're kind of having the same thing again today. We're going to be looking at Thessalonica, Berea, and of course Athens, where uh, most of the action uh, takes place. And the big idea today is that God is sovereign and he diligently pursues us. That's, that's one of the things that I'm sure Luke is getting at by 
uh, giving us this narrative history of what happens to Paul and Silas and the others uh, on this trip. So let's just dive in. We're at the beginning of chapter 17. We're going to read first about Thessalonica, the first nine uh, verses. Luke records this. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Let me just stop there and mention a couple of things. The first one, um, it, it's more about me than you, but I got to say it. How I'm a Godfather guy, you know, I read the books and I've watched the movies, many of you know that. How many of you have seen The Godfather, okay? Okay, so good, good, okay, classic movie. So, um, yeah, tad violent, but at any rate, um, very theological. So, um, Michael gets married in that movie to Diane Keaton, but before he marries Michael, he's actually married to another woman. Does anybody remember this? On the island of Sicily, he marries a woman. What was her name? Apollonia, that's right, from Apollonia, apparently. Anyway, so it's in the Bible, so I thought I'd bring it up. Anyway, here's the other things that we, uh, that we need to look at. Number one, I've mentioned before this pattern that Paul goes into the synagogue. And the reason he does that is because he's going into the synagogue to find Jews and devout Gentiles, or God-fearing Gentiles, because they are people steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures, the scriptures that have constantly talked and prophesied for hundreds of years about the fact that a Messiah is coming and that this Messiah must suffer and die and then is going to be raised again. The suffering servant from Isaiah 53 and many other places in the Old Testament. So he knows that if he's going to tell people about Jesus, the best place to start is in a place where they already know the backstories. So he goes into the synagogue to proclaim Jesus to them. He knows eventually he's going to get kicked out of every synagogue because eventually that's going to upset the status quo. And so that's when he starts planting the house churches in these cities where he goes. And usually those house churches are planted more by Gentiles who have converted to Christianity than Jews, but there are some Jews who do that. So we see this pattern again here, and we're going to see that pattern again in Berea, and we'll see it again in a modified uh, version when we get to Athens. The other thing is that he went in there and he reasoned with them and he explained to them about Christ. Literally, literally what he's doing in there, what that means in there is that he's presenting his case for Jesus. He's not going in there speaking harshly to them. He's not telling them, he's not denigrating them in any way. He's just going in and saying, hey, all this stuff that you've been waiting for, the, the Messiah, the, the promises of God, the hope of God, everything that we've been preaching every Sabbath day for hundreds and hundreds of years, it's now fulfilled in Jesus. I want to tell you about Jesus. He's just presenting his case. But what's interesting is that many people disagree with him and become offended in their disagreement with Paul. They, they become so offended that they want to drive him out of the cities that he's in. And in fact, uh, we saw in Lystra that he was actually stoned. They, wanted, they tried to kill him in Lystra because of what he was saying. Uh, this last week, I was listening to a guy on the radio, and he was making the case that in our culture today, in our world today, to disagree with somebody is now a synonym for offended. If I disagree with you, I'm automatically offended. And I understand, it's like we can't have disagreements anymore and still remain friends. 
Do you feel like that sometimes in culture? If we disagree on something, we're not going to get along, we're not going to be friends, you're out, okay, of my life. And I understand that. It kind of feels like that. Uh, Studies on social media and our digital communication say that this has only been exacerbated by social media. The fact that we can get online where we feel anonymous and we can be angry and and we can rage against people and and we have this anger and, and everybody gets offended even just by disagreeing. If you're on Twitter, you see this every single day, okay? And I, and I understand that, uh, that, that we kind of feel that those are synonyms. But it's really not a new thing. We're going to see here, more than 2,000 years ago, that people got offended by what Paul was saying, and they react in much the same way. They want to kill Paul. They don't like, they're offended by what he has to say. I think it's just part of fallen human nature, that when we disagree, we tend to get offended. And it's really hard to be able to engage in civil dialogue. So we have those things kind of in the background. Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas. They were converted to Christianity, as did, a many, as did many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. That means a lot of, lead, of the leading women there became Christians. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come, have come also here. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people... And the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. There's three kind of disturbing things about this paragraph that I want to mention. And and really, one of the reasons I want to mention is because it it shows us that things really haven't changed very much in 2,000 years. Number one, the pious, religious, moral Jews went out and hired bad men to do their dirty work for them. They didn't go and do this. They went out and hired others who needed the money to be able to do this for them. They wanted to keep their hands clean, so to speak. And the reason, of course, they did this is, once again, jealousy. The problem with proclaiming Christ is that it is always going to upset the status quo. It's always going to upset power structures And there's always going to be somebody's income that it starts to interfere with when you begin to proclaim Christ as the Savior. That is just a fact, and that's exactly what's going on here. They didn't want Paul interfering with their status, their power, their income anymore, which he's run into in every city in which he's gone into. And so their idea was to set off unrest in the city to create like a, a, a riot because then the Roman government would come in and they would quiet things down and then they would say, who started all of this? And they'd point to the evangelists and then they would get taken off to prison or executed. That was their plan. Here's the second thing. Jason was arrested, detained, and fined for hospitality. That's all he did. He opened up his house to these guys and he was arrested and detained and fined, Okay. And, and again, that's, that's applicable today. I, I know lots of people who, in the name of Jesus, will go out and they will serve their community or they will open up their home and allow people to come into their home and people will get upset about this. 
And the thought is that, hey, we're doing something nice. We're doing something for Jesus. We're serving others. It isn't always received that way by other people. We need to be aware that when we start to live out the life of the kingdom of God that God calls us to, there is going to be at times opposition to this. It's been true for thousands and thousands of years. So he was shaken down simply for his faith. And then number three, they, they claimed that he was, that Jesus and that um, Paul and Silas were proclaiming another king. Here's what they were doing. And this is the one that I, I find the most unbelievable. These guys knew that that's not what they were doing. But they, if they were able to say to the Roman authorities, these guys are saying there's somebody that's set up against Caesar, Jesus, then for sure they would be, they, that, that's, that, that is breaking the Roman law of sedition and they would be arrested and they would be executed for that by proclaiming this other king. They know they're not proclaiming another king. They're just saying that Jesus is the fulfilled Messiah. That's all they're saying. But by going out and saying, hey, there's this other king that they've set up over and against Caesar, that's sedition. That's how they're trying to shut them down. So Thessalonica was rough, right? That was a rough stop for Paul and Silas and the guys. And yet, we know that this magnificent, wonderful, great church was planted in Thessalonica a place where Paul writes two letters to. And he loves the guys, the people in Thessalonica. He loves them there. And this has been a great, great, great uh, New Testament church. So the idea there is to be reminded that when you come to Christ and then you are sent out, we are gospel-centered and outward-focused, that when we come to Christ and then we are sent out, it's going to be hard. There is going to be opposition. Just because we love Jesus doesn't mean it's going to be hard. It's going to be easy in this world. That's the way it is. Welcome to Sunday morning at Redemption Arcadia. Okay? So here's the next paragraph. They're moving on to Berea now. So the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. If you wanted to do anything covertly back then, you did it at night because they didn't have any lights. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way by, to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul, in other words, brought him along, brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to both come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So they head to Berea, which is 50 miles west-southwest of Thessalonica. So we got a little map here. You know, I love the maps. So last week they were up in Philippi. They head to Amphipolis, Apollonia, Thessalonica, Berea, about 50 miles uh, west-southwest of Thessalonica, and then after Berea, they're going to put Paul on a ship, and, and Silas is going uh, to come later. They put Paul on a ship, and he goes 220 miles down to Athens. One of the reasons the scholars and the commentators say the reason he went 220 miles down to Athens was they figured the men were willing to walk 50 miles from Thessalonica to go and agitate people in Berea. Maybe they wouldn't be willing to go 220 miles south-southeast to go to Athens. They're trying to get Paul as far away from the agitators in Thessalonica. But anyway, there's the map for you so you can kind of see the Mediterranean Sea, Cyprus, Crete, Sicily is over 
uh, over there. Rome is over uh, that way. So you got the map now. And he goes into the synagogue, and he finds noble Jews. What does it mean to be a noble Jew? Well, it depends on the context. In some contexts, it means that you were born to the right family, but that's not what the word means here. What the word means here is that you are willing to listen and to engage with intellectual honesty even if there's disagreement. In other words, they they believed in civil dialogue. I don't agree with you necessarily, Paul, but I'm willing to talk to you about it. And again, women of high standing. This is the second time in this chapter Luke mentions this. Luke doesn't mention anything by happenstance. So he mentions this again. This would have freaked out many in the first century. We need to understand context again. We look at that and go, what's the big deal? In the first century, this was a big deal. Number one, women were welcomed into the fellowship as equals. They were welcomed as equals. That was not necessarily true in Judaism. There were places where women had to be when it came to worship and only places that men could be. They were welcomed into the full fellowship. And second of all, that Luke would write about it was even radical. That he would write this down in a text was something that was radical. And one of the things that the commentators say is that we need to make sure that we understand that Jesus erases this boundary that existed back then, this boundary for women. I mean, think about Jesus' ministry. Some of the times that he got into the most trouble was when? When he was ministering to and including women, right? Think about Paul's ministry. Here's Paul. He's a Pharisee. He's steeped in the Old Testament scriptures and now as a Christian. He, he is welcoming women into the fellowship. His ministry is influenced by, the, by the, how Jesus eradicates these boundaries, But I'll tell you, for Jewish men especially, this would have been really, really hard. Not because God thinks less of women, but because for years, the professional religious people in the Jewish religion had interpreted the Old Testament unwell. And so things go swimmingly in Berea. Things are wonderful in Berea until, as we also saw in chapter 14, some people can't just not believe. They can't just say, I don't believe, and that's the end of it. They have to take their unbelief on the road. They're so angry about not believing that they're going to follow Paul wherever he goes and try to stop him from preaching. And so the agitated Jews came from Thessalonica and caused enough trouble for Paul to be escorted out of Berea as well and sent down to Athens. So now we go to Athens. Verses 16 through 21 sets up the passage that Laura read for us today. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? That would be an insult, by the way. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. In nothing except telling or hearing something new. 
So Paul's spirit, he goes to Athens and his spirit is provoked by the Holy Spirit. This is Paul's spirit. His, his soul, Paul's soul as a Christian is disquieted by the number of false gods and the number of idols that are in the city of Athens, which was filled with, filled with idols, statues and plaques and temples and votives. It was just filled with it. And verse 16 says the city was filled with these false gods, these idols. You realize our city is filled with idols as well. Now, we maybe don't see them as plainly as they were so obvious in Athens. We don't have necessarily all the statues and votives and plaques, but we have idols. We have buildings where we go and we worship other things other than God. We do these things. And we also carry things around in our pockets that we worship. We worship things that are more ethereal, that are, that are uh, more abstract than concrete. We have our idols too. We have our idols of status. Status. What's my status? What's my, what's my identity in? Who am I? We have the idol of power. How much power do I have? How much influence do I have? What's my image? And we worship. We have image management consultants now. That's one of the fastest growing industries in the world. People who are professionals at managing other people's images. You don't think we worship at these, at these altars? We worship at the altar of celebrity. Uh, in James Davidson Hunter's wonderful book, To Change the World, he talks about how we worship at the altar of social capital. Social capital is our understanding of how much influence we have over other people by how many followers we have on Twitter, friends we have on Facebook, and whatever it is we have on Instagram and all the other social media. We add all those together and we keep that, we keep that number and we're checking our phone. Do you know, research shows that when we're awake, we are checking our smartphones every four minutes. Every four minutes when we're awake. You think we don't worship at the altar of our cell phone? Walk into an important meeting somewhere and look at what everybody's doing in that important meeting. Everybody's got their phone. By the way, check your phone right now, then you can be with me for the next four minutes, okay? So, so all, of these, all of these things. Uh, uh, Tony Renke, I just read his most recent book, really helpful. He works for um, John Piper in Desiring God, and he wrote a really good book recently. He talks about how we're worshiping at the altar of self-replicated images on social media. How many times can we get images of ourselves retweeted and reposted on Facebook and things like that? Because that feeds our ego, and we think that we're going to find fulfillment and joy there. Uh, Ranky talks about something that I talk a lot about with, with um, pre-marrieds, about this idea that, that in our world today... We want to present ourselves as finished products. That's all we want to do is just present ourselves as finished products on social media and everywhere we go. We lie on our resumes. We go and we buy really cool $6 sale rack t-shirts over at, 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 at the Old Navy to look really... We, we want to present this finished product. But he says it's damn... Do you know how hard it is to keep up with us making sure that we're a finished product all the time? He talks about it in his book. He says this. Social media calls for a one-dimensional, carefully manicured projection of the self. Then we trudge our sorry selves to social media in order to confirm just how awful our lives are compared to everyone else's perfectly manicured togetherness. Isn't that just true? We think that we've got it all together and we're posting how we've got it all together and then we see how much more everybody else has it together. 
And we start to feel kind of sick inside. Well, I got to work even harder. And we get on this stupid treadmill. This, and we're worshiping at this, at this treadmill. We're just worshiping at this. We need to remember that real life is what happens in between our posts. That's where real life happens. And here's what Scripture says about us. Scripture says we're not finished products. We are works in progress. And I got to tell you something. I share this with you with as much joy as I can muster because I think this is one of the most freeing things that we can have in our culture today of, of competing with other finished products. The fact that, that Scripture says you're not a finished product. You are a work in progress. And that work is being done by the creator God of the universe through the power of his Holy Spirit indwelling in you. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, he says, And I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it next week? Before your next post? No, on the day of Christ Jesus. We are constantly works in progress. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, though the outer self is wasting away, I paraphrase it this way, gravity wins, though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. We're a work in progress. Romans chapter 8, along verses 28 and 29, he says that we are being conformed to the image of God's Son. We are being conformed to Christ. We're not there yet, but we are, that's what sanctification is, and it's done by the power and the provocation of the Holy Spirit. And I think that is great news. Here you go. It's not that we don't try. I am not anti-ambition. I am not anti-success. Those are good things. Be ambitious and be successful. They are not to be shunned, but Scripture gives the truth and a measure of peace about this endless pursuit. God is with us through the resurrected Christ. So these idols that I just, all these idols, the status, the power, the phones, all of this stuff, they're not bad things. In fact, I would suggest that they're mostly good things and they're things that we have to have and that we have to engage in order to even live in this world, to be able to get along. It's not that they're bad things, but when we make them ultimate things, we make them God things and then we expect them to do what only God can do for us. And that is fill that God-shaped vacuum in our soul. That's not what these things were designed for. And when we expect them to do that, we are going to live a life of disappointment, frustration, anxiety, and depression. So they're not bad things. In Athens, they had statues and temples and votives, literally thousands. The, the historians at the time that lived in Athens and wrote about it said there were, most of them agree, about 30,000 of these statues and plaques and votives and temples in Athens. 30,000. One great, ancient Greek philosopher said that if you went to Athens, it was easier to find a god than a man. Easier to find a God than a man. So Paul goes there, and it's kind of a hybrid of his synagogue pattern. He goes into the synagogue, but he also goes into the marketplace. The marketplace was something in Athens that was even more important than the synagogue. It was their church. And, and he could go there every single day. He didn't have to wait for the Sabbath to be able to go there. And there were Jews, and there were devout persons. Those would be the God-fearing Gentiles. But there's a third category in Athens. Those are the philosophers, the thinkers, and the talkers. Paul talks about them in two categories, the Stoic uh, philosophers and the Epicurean philosophers. Now, let me just tell you, there is no way, I could take 30 minutes to unpack 
Stoic um, philosophy and Epicurean philosophy, and that wouldn't do it justice. So what I'm going to say here about these two is way oversimplified. You can do your own research into this, but it's helpful to at least have kind of a beginning fundamental understanding. Here's what the Stoics believed. They said, just let life happen to you. Just let life happen. Don't ever try to change life. Don't ever try to change your circumstances. Don't try to manipulate anything. Just endure it. Just take it. And growth and maturity comes from accepting things the way they are. Pain and suffering should be endured quietly and accepted with gladness. That's what the Stoics thought. And then the Epicureans, kind of a little bit of a different school, they believed that a person should pursue fulfillment at any cost. And at any cost should avoid displeasure or pain. Just pursue pleasure. Life is about pleasure. Get as much pleasure as you can. Get as much gratification as you can. And get it right now. They were the original pleasure principle people. That's all they wanted to do. And neither one of these philosophies really had any room for the divine. So they weren't that interested in anything about God. And so they made fun of Paul. They called him a babbler. In the Greek, that, that Greek word is, is a, a, a the, the base word is spermos, which literally means seed. And the word that's interpreted here literally means this. One who pecks at, one who merely pecks at ideas the way birds peck at seed, but never goes deep in order to fully understand an idea or wholly commit to it. In other words, people would sit around and they'd just peck at these ideas. They'd look at their Twitter feeds or their Facebook feeds. They'd just peck at these ideas, but they would never stop, and they would never ruminate, and they would never go deep, and they would never commit to it, and they would never think deeply about these things. And the irony, of course, is that after Paul presents his case and reasons with them, he makes it clear that they're the ones that are the seed peckers, not Paul. They're the babblers. And they not only mock Paul, but they also accuse him of sedition, this idea of advocating foreign divinities, that's a problem in Athens. 450 years earlier, a guy named Socrates advocated foreign divinities, and he ended up dead as a, for that reason. So this is a bit of a problem here. And, yes, it's plural. He, they thought he was advocating more than one god. They thought he was advocating divinities, not of divinity. Because they believed that Jesus was a god and the resurrection was a separate god. Jesus was the God of healing, and the resurrection was the God of restoration. So now there's 30,002 gods in Athens, as far as they are concerned. And so it's off to the Oropagus, where they, they would debate the questions of the day in Athens and seek to hear something new. The Oropagus is uh, literally, it's the hill of Ares. Ares was the Athenian god of war. Some people uh, know this uh, area as Mars Hill. Maybe you've heard that. We've had churches in the United States named Mars Hill uh, Church. That's where they get the name. And all they did at Mars Hill was pine to hear the new stuff. Again, kind of like our digital internet instant availability culture where we just kind of skim and surf and graze. But the key is new. It's got to be new. We want to hear what's new. We want to see what's new. A any new seed to peck at, we're excited about. In fact, um, I I've been reading recently that there's a new addiction called neomania out there. So what does the word neo mean? Besides Keanu Reeves, I know. All right. Neo means what? New. And mania means addicted or freaked out about it. Maniac. Okay. Neomania are, are people who are addicted to anything new. That's all they want. They just, 
They, they, just, they, they wake up, their phone's right in their hands. The first thing they do, they don't even say hello to anybody else in the house. They got their phone. They're, 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 the, they, they just, they're just looking for something new. And newness is what counts. Here's the thing. Here's what's really funny. Doesn't matter if it's true. Doesn't matter if it's accurate. Doesn't matter if it has integrity. It just has to be new. That's all that we're looking for. Kind of sounds like a place where false news can be really easily bred. Amen? False news, by the way, on both sides. Not taking any sides here. I'm on Jesus' side, all right? Now, we don't at church very often quote Louis C.K., but I'm about to, okay? So one of my favorite monologues that Louis C.K. does is he says this, and I think he's right. He's very funny, but he's right. He, he, sa- he says, we live in a culture now where somebody says, hey, we get to do this, and our reaction is, well, I'm going to do it. And he says, and maybe that's not the best way to approach new things. We need to slow down and think What's this going to do to us? What are the consequences? Let's think about it before we just jump in. Some of you are like, did he just really quote Louis C.K. in church? All right, here you go. Francis Schaeffer. Is that better for some of you? Okay, Francis Schaeffer said the same thing way before Louis C.K. He just said it in a more erudite way. Here you go. Francis Schaeffer says this. Humans have two boundaries. What can a person do and what should a person do? Modernity, unfortunately, has lifted that second boundary. We simply do, and to our own uh, peril. Isn't that true? We just jump in and do it. And later on, we find out, oh, there's some bad consequences. And we're like, ah, it's in too deep now to even think about it. It reminds, here you go. Sorry, bring up another movie. It reminds me of that, that line in Jurassic Park. How many of you saw Jurassic Park? The original one, the good one. Okay, so... Uh, that line where uh, Jeff Goldblum's character is saying to the inventor of Jurassic Park when things are going really bad, okay, he looks at the inventor of Jurassic Park and he says this. He says, you were so busy trying to figure out if you could do this, you never asked if you should do this. See, even from Jurassic Park, we get deep, heavy philosophical theology, okay? I just want to point that out to you. Well, now Paul really goes to work, and this is the passage that Laura read for us. This is his speech. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Is this not clever or what? The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand by, by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having de- determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. There's a famous, pretty famous popular Christian song that came about, out about 20 years ago that has that line in there. Because some people think that's an Old Testament quote. That's not. He's quoting Epimenides, uh, an ancient Greek poet. He's using pop culture to get their attention so that he can tell them about Jesus, okay? And then he does it again, as even some of your own poets have said, and then he quotes Eratos, for we are indeed his offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, all of this stuff that you have all over this city. That's not God. Uh, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed, and of this Of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. So there's his speech. It's it's what scholars call a prime example of preaching to Gentiles or people that have absolutely no backstory. And what he does, and the reason they love his speech so much, is that Paul takes the context of his audience to heart and then tailors his message so it can be heard in their context. He does good audience analysis. We teach that in public speaking classes today. Do good audience analysis. And the message is rooted in Old Testament theology, yet he quotes famous Greek poets and philosophers, not because he holds them as scripture, but because it helps him to make, a, make his point in a way that was familiar and respectful to his audience. It's brilliant speech making. And we often use pop culture here. I've been using it all, all morning. Uh, for instance, we use movies and we use music and we use stories. We don't exalt it. But we use it as a way to help people connect, to help people have access to what the Word of God's saying. And that's what Paul is doing. And he compliments them. He says, I see that you're very religious. I've been strolling around. You've got gods everywhere. You have objects of worship. And I also saw an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And that's where he goes to work. And we need to understand the backdrop of that as well to know why Paul would bring that up. It's really interesting. And I just ripped this straight out of Conrad Gemp's uh, Acts commentary. Here's what he says. The legend behind the establishment of this altar provides the backdrop for Paul's entire speech. Legend had it that there was once a terrible plague in the city of Athens. And attempts to appease the god and stop the plague had no effect. So one of the wise men of the day brought a flock of sheep to the top of Mars Hill and released them. Wherever these sheep stopped, an altar was set up to an anonymous god, and the animal was sacrificed there. This course of action was allegedly effective, and the city returned to health. <laughs> so they have this altar to the unknown god where a sheep stopped and then was slaughtered. Okay? So Paul uses this setup to, to go at a bunch of stuff in this message. Here, here are the first three things. Number one, he defends himself against the charge of advocating foreign gods. He says, God is already here. He's really close. You just don't know him. That's verse 27. Then he shows them that they are worshiping in ignorance. They're not worshiping in truth. But I'm going to introduce you to Jesus, who is the truth. That's verses 30 and 31. And then he says... A decision is required, though. You don't get to just hear about Jesus. You have to decide for him and commit to him. You have to repent. There's two paths. You can repent or you can face condemnation. There's no third way. It's only those two. And all three of those first three points are true today. Christians and evangelical churches are not proclaiming something strange or foreign, but rather we're proclaiming something that's true and beautiful, and that's Jesus. Second of all, all of us worship something. We do. We may not want to admit it, but we're worshiping something. We're serving something, even if it's just ourselves and our own gratification and our own ego. We worship something, but we do it in ignorance because it's not God. Jesus is the truth. And number three, there is a decision to be made. Repent or be held accountable by God. 
And embedded in this speech are four other things that Paul does that I think are really helpful. Number one, he talks about the brotherhood and sisterhood of humanity. He, he references the one man, Adam, from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And, and the reason he does this is because in the New Jerusalem, we need to understand that in the New Jerusalem, all of these boundaries and identities that we have re- erected for ourselves, they're not going to exist there. All this tribalism, the, the ethnicity, the, the culture, the political party, the football teams that we like, whatever it is, none of that's going to matter in the New Jerusalem. And frankly, if we remember, we're going to think it was kind of silly that we found that so important. Third, he says God is near to us, but everybody falls short. Everybody falls short. There's the corruption of original sin, Genesis 3, and yet God diligently pursues us. He's coming after us. He's the hound of heaven. He knows that we're sinful. He knows that we're corrupted by sin, but he loves us and he pursues us in Christ. Our problem is that we think we're okay, but we're really not. And this part of Paul's speech, verses 26 and 27 especially, clearly has Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20 in mind. That's where Paul lays out his, his argument that everybody thinks they've got God beat, they've got God wired, they've, got, they've fixed all the problems, everybody's sure that they're okay apart from God, but they're not. Everybody falls short of the glory of God. But those who have come to Jesus have been redeemed and reconciled through faith in him by the grace of God. Human fixes for spiritual and existential problems are never the answer. Here's another thing. He says that God has been patient with his creation and with us. But the day is coming and we're going to need Jesus. He says, he's been patient, but there's a day coming. You need Jesus. God is sovereign, but he diligently pursues us. And number four, we know the Savior is Jesus. Why? Verse 31, because of the resurrection. Jesus is not just a religious teacher or a philosopher. He defeated death. He is risen. And that makes him the one true God. Here you go. In short, Paul tells his self-satisfied, sophisticated audience that everything about their religiousness was in error except their ignorance. That's the only thing they got right. You're ignorant and you know it. Now, verse 22 to 31, his speech, for the most part, his audience really liked it. And everything's going fine most of the way, but then Paul crosses a line when he mentions the resurrection and that everybody has to repent. Those two things are a problem. And there's two main reasons that they won't believe, and it's the same reasons we don't believe today. Number one, if God made the world and everything in it, and he doesn't live in or need temples made by us humans, and, 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 he, and God doesn't need us to serve him food. Now, understand, in, in both Athens and in Corinth, in the, in the temples there, the, worship, the temples of worship there, people would prepare meals, and they would take them in, and they would place them on the altar. And then if they left and went back a couple of days later... The food would be gone. Oh, the gods must have eaten it. How many of you grew up in a home where when you were really, really little, on Christmas Eve, you would put out cookies and milk for Santa? And then you'd come running down in the morning, and the cookies and milk would be gone. And then, I don't know, you were 17 or 18, and you suddenly realized, I think my parents are eating the cookies and milk, okay? This is where we get the idea. So here you go. Paul's saying, look, 
God made everything in the world. He doesn't need us to serve him food. He doesn't need these temples made by humans. In short, he doesn't need anything from us. He alone is the one who gives life and breath and everything to man. Well, they don't like that because that means that they don't control God anymore. The whole purpose of the sacrifices and feeding them and building the temples was to control God. Isn't that ironic? If he's God, he doesn't need to be controlled, right? But I want to control God. Don't we want to control God? Isn't that kind of the way we handle God? We want God to see things our way. The whole idea of building all this stuff was to control the gods. Well, if that's the case, then who is God? We are. If we're the ones controlling God, they're not God. We are. And they don't want to give that up. And we do the same thing. We assume that God sees the world the way we does, the, the way we do. And if he doesn't, he needs to adjust to us. That's the way we look at the world. And us adjusting to him is not a consideration. And let me tell you something. As a pastor, day in and day out, week in and week out, this is probably the most common conversation I have with people. Well, I don't see it that way. I, I don't see how God could possibly see things that way. I, I see it this way, and this is the way God should see it. All day long. Frankly, it's one of the reasons why I'm so tired when I get home, because I'm just listening to this over and over. People saying, well, I don't know why God doesn't see this my way. I see it this way. This is the way God should see it. Why doesn't God see it my way? I don't agree with that. I don't think God should see it that way. And by the way, these are Christians that I'm talking to. That's what's really scary. And they all think they're the only ones who've come up with this. That's really fascinating to me. You're all doing it. We're all doing it, okay? Because we want control. And when we run across something in his word that we don't like, here's what we do. We say, well, that's ancient and archaic and God has changed his mind. Rather than, here you go, here, here you go. When you run across something in scripture that you don't agree with it, wrestle with it and pray about it. Don't just dismiss it out of hand as being ancient and archaic or not lining up with how you see the world. If, if you're trying to get God to line up the way you see the world, you think you're God. You would never say that out loud, but that's what you think. It's that simple. This is all about control. He has it and we want it. Here's the second reason this is hard for the Athenians and us to come to God. Repentance, humility, submission, and being judged, verses 30 through 31, in their culture were signs of weakness. They're signs of weakness in our culture too. People feel like they're going to be weak if, if, if in humble submission we submit ourselves to others and to God, we're going to be seen as weak. I, I'm telling you, I run into this all the time with husbands and wives and pre-marrieds, that whole idea of submission. You need to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, what if he does this and what if she does that? There are no loopholes. Paul says submit to one another out of reverence in Christ. We need to, it's hard. It's hard to humbly submit and to repent of our sin and allow God and his wisdom to judge us. That's hard. They would never do this of their own accord. God has to be the one by the power of his Holy Spirit to open their eyes and their ears and their hearts and their minds. And we have the same problem today. It's called pride. The king of all sins. So many of us are worried that if we humble ourselves and submit and repent and if we open ourselves up to God's wisdom and judgment it's just too risky. We're willing to give him the small stuff that really doesn't matter, but the big stuff, nah, it's a little too risky. And yet it's the best place for us to be. 
Paul writes to the church at Philippi. He was in Philippi, quote, last week, okay? He writes to the church at Philippi later on when he's in prison in Rome. And in chapter 2, he says this, in, in verse 5, he says, Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was God, did not think that equality with God was something that he needed to grab onto and, and hold on to. Instead, he emptied himself and became like a man and came down here to earth and he submitted himself to the cross. He humbled. He, God, who never sinned, humbled himself and went to the cross so that you and I could have reconciliation and redemption and victory over sin. Paul says, that's the mind that you and I should have. One that is willing to humble ourselves just the way Jesus did. Will you look at those last three verses and see what happens? It, it doesn't go too well. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear from you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, Dionysius I always mess up that name, the D-dude, okay? Call him D-dude, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. That might be Luke saying something like, look, you want to hear about more about the story in Athens? Go and talk to these two people. They're believers now. And now that they fully understand what resurrection means, what Paul means by that, most of them are looking at him and going, man, you really were stoned and not with rocks, man. There's something seriously wrong with you, Paul. Okay? Others politely say, they're a little bit more polite, they say, we'll be back later. How many of you do sales for a living? What does it mean when somebody says, oh, I'll be back later? <laughs> They're not coming back. They're not coming. It's called a be back, okay? okay? I used to sell for a living too, okay? Yet God still worked and some of them were saved. God still worked even in Athens. This narrative history that Luke presents to us shows a strong sense of both God's sovereignty and his diligent pursuit and guidance of people. His sovereignty in that even though there was opposition, and the life of faith is hard and it's filled with disapproval from others, he still finds victory. When you come to Christ, here's how Renke says it. He says, if you follow Christ, other people are going to unfollow you. That's just the way it's going to be. He still finds victory, though, even in the midst of that. People are saved, people serve, and people love and sacrifice for others. And it demonstrates God's diligent pursuit of us, the fact that he's the hound of heaven. He'll go anywhere, even and especially in the context of hostility, to make his son known. And by the way, he does that primarily by sending us. Having Allison and Megan up here was perfect timing for this sermon. They're sent into this refugee community to serve and to love their neighbors because they are our neighbors. You and I, we are sent by the power and the provocation of the Holy Spirit into our families, into our neighborhoods, into our schools, into our workplaces to love and to serve and to make a difference. And it's not easy. And we need to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me just finish with this story. Um, years ago, I had just finished my bachelor's degree, then my four years at Fuller Seminary. I got my Master of Divinity 
and I applied to Arizona State University, the, the uh, Hugh Down School of Human Communication. I, somehow I got in. If Those of you that know about this school, it's not the easiest school in the world. I know, ASU, really not. It's not easy to get in for graduate school. I wanted to get a master's in, in communication theory. I applied, I got accepted, went through the interview process and all that. I was so excited. I got accepted to the Hugh Down School to work on my master's. But I also... It brought a lot of anxiety because I had just spent seven years in Jesus school, you know, Bible. Uh, I got my bachelor's in, in, in um, Bible from Grand Canyon University, went to Fuller and got my master's of divinity. Seven years. Now I'm going to go into uh, ASU, which some people would say, hey, man, that's the belly of the beast. If you're a Christian, it's, they're going to tear into you. They're, I mean, their mascot is even the sun devils for crying out loud. You know, it's going to be kind of hard, you know. And there was a little bit of anxiety for me. And, and it was August 2001. It was the night before my first class at ASU. And I was really struggling to sleep. And on three different occasions, this doesn't happen to me very often, believe me. I can, I can tell you every story when something like this happens. But on three different occasions during the night, I heard audibly somebody say to me, but who knows that you have come to such a time as this? It woke me up once at 1.30 in the morning. It woke me up again at 2.30 in the morning. And then it woke me up again at 4 in the morning. The third time it woke me up at 4 in the morning, I said, all right, that's it. I'm going to stay up. I know that verse is somewhere in the Old Testament. Sorry, I went to Fuller. I wasn't fully versed on Esther. Okay. I know it's... And so I went out to the dining room table, and I started looking, and I found it. It's Esther chapter 4, which is now one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. I love the book of Esther. But it's chapter 4, where Esther is being called by um, God and by her uncle Mordecai to go into the king at the risk of her life. If the king didn't want her there, he could have her executed. That's the way it worked in, in uh, the Persian Empire. But he was saying, you're called to go in there and intervene for our people. And she's saying, I'm not going. I, he's going to kill me if I go in there. And Mordecai says to her, he says, look, you can not do it if you want because God's salvation will come from somewhere else. God's going to save his people. But who knows that you have been chosen for such a time as this. You are the one that God wants to go in there. Now, let me, here you go. Hear me, hear me, please. I'm not saying I'm Esther. I'm no Esther. What I am telling you is that God used this story to make sure that I knew that he was with me by the power of his Holy Spirit, by the resurrected Christ in me, that it was the prodding and the power of the Holy Spirit that I was going to be able to go into Arizona State University and somehow, as a Christian, with a voice, make a difference there in the belly of the beast. And it was a great two and a half years when I was there. People shunned me at first, but eventually they came around and realized I wasn't that weird and I wasn't on TV or anything, so that's okay. And I actually made friends, and, and, and God was able to make a difference. And, and I remember thinking, really, God, me? And he said, no, not you, the Holy Spirit in you. See, that's the sovereignty of God and his faithful, diligent pursuit of us. If you're in Christ, that's our lives. That's our lives. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you for Paul and his obedience and everything that he's done. And so, God, I pray that we would just be reminded every single day that you are sovereign, that there's nothing out of your control, and that you fill us with your Holy Spirit, and that you are diligent about pursuing us and giving us your power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.